0: as john mentioned to you earlier the grovers are moving away from us dennis and candace and their daughters and we'll miss them greatly dennis as many of you know has served us as a deacon for quite some time and very very capably and faithfully and candace has served us in many capacities beyond that uh in children's ministry and and hospitality in all kinds of ways they're always ready to help and so we're really grateful for you guys thank you for all the ways that you and your family have served our church. We're we're glad and we're thrilled for you to see you go to, to the Tulsa area to be near Candace's family, and, and yet we're sad for us. This is just the way of, of life in the church, isn't it? Um, but it's a good thing, so we're glad for that. Um, well, this morning, welcome, as John already told you, to Advent and to, uh, to Christmas even. And during these four Sundays of December, we're going to look at Isaiah, the prophecies of Isaiah, and specifically what some call the book of Emmanuel, the 7 through 12, chapters 7 through 12 of Isaiah, and see what it has to say to us regarding Christmas. So young Christians, as you listen to this passage that's in your bulletin this morning, here we're going to meet a king, and his name is Ahaz, and he's in trouble. What does the the Lord, what does God offer to him in the midst of his trouble? See if you can pay attention in here and maybe write it down, uh, what God offers to him. So listen as I read from Isaiah 7. And and as we go along, our thoughts together, we'll we'll really wander way on into chapter 8 as well this morning. And so I have a Bible up here on the podium with me with more than the text that you have before you uh, so that I can refer to it as well. But I'll just read the first 17 verses of chapter 7. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Reason, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shir Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And say to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. At the fierce anger of reason in Syria and the son of Remaliah, "...because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves, and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass, for the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is reason. And within sixty-five years Ephraim will be shattered from being a people." And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And Isaiah said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men? That you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but this word of our God stands forever. O Lord, we pray that you would grant to us faith. Give us eyes to see your good news in this strange, prophetic narrative. Help us, Lord, to see and to believe. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, have you been to the mall yet? I mean, since your Black Friday excursions, I'm sure you were out on that day. Maybe not. Christmas is there. In case you didn't know, Christmas is there at the mall in full force, as it always is at this time of year. The merchandise and the music and the decor over at North Park Mall, they have hanging from the roof, the ceiling, and in, in one Uh, particular corner of the mall, Santa and his sleigh and his reindeer, and I think, I'm pretty sure that it's the same marshmallow and licorice-covered Santa and the same pecan-covered reindeer that were there when I was a kid 46 years ago. I think I can see the dust that's gathered on the pecans up there. They've been there for four decades or more. I think they've been there forever, and I love the mall at Christmas for those sorts of things. Not so much for the crushing crowds and the, the rushing consumption that characterizes the season, but those things are so predictable. You know, it's, it's the annual grasp for meaning, to be philosophical about it. you know, It's the annual grasp for meaning about Christmas. What is Christmas about? What is Christmas after all? rather than just an American mall holiday? You know, we, we go to the Bible, of course, to answer that question. And and there are any number of ways that you might do that in the Bible, places that you could go in the Bible. But there's only one thing that really answers the question of what is Christmas about. Christmas comes in the midst of a war. It always does because it did in history. This is among the most famous of Christmas phrases from the Bible. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel, it's one of those so well-known phrases in culture. Even non-Christians are so often familiar with the term Emmanuel, God with us. But that term first came to only one person as God delivered it through Isaiah. It came to one man, a pathetically unfaithful leftover of a king in a divided kingdom, Ahaz. These words came to Ahaz about 730 years or so before the birth of Christ. And they came to Ahaz after ages after the promise of Christ had already come. You know, God for all eternity existed to give you a little bit of a history reminder. For all eternity, God existed in, in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, without need and perfectly complete. And then God spoke to create. And there was the creation. It was good. And He placed the man and the woman in the garden to, to rule and to subdue, as He gave them their, their task, to, to image Him within His creation as His vice regents. And then the fall... Came about in the freedom that he gave to them, they decided that they wanted their own kingdoms, and so they fell away from his call. And yet God promised to them a seed. The, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent who tempted you. And Adam and Eve believed. And though the Bible doesn't say it there in Genesis this way, as it does with Abraham, they did believe, and it was credited to them as righteousness. And there was the seed of the gospel. And hundreds of years then, after Noah and the flood, God came to Abram and promised to build a family through him. And he did. Isaac and Jacob, Jacob whose name was changed to Israel as he struggled with God, and Jacob's twelve sons, who, along with their families, eventually moved to Egypt in God's kind providence to avoid the results of a famine, and there they were for hundreds of years becoming slaves to the Pharaoh, and God sent a redeemer, Moses. He sent Moses to to draw them out in the exodus from the land, and he, he carried them on to the promised land where he gave them judges to rule over them, but that wasn't good enough for them in their unfaithfulness. They demanded a king, and God gave it and established a kingdom there with with men to serve as kings, but ultimately there was division after Solomon. Maybe you know some of that history. Solomon's sons divided the kingdom. And now there is Israel in the north, ten of the tribes, including Ephraim, which is mentioned in this passage. And in the south, there's Judah and Benjamin, two of the tribes. And Ahaz is the king of the southern kingdom, Judah. And all through that drama, God's promise remained. I will live with you and walk with you i will be your god and you will be my people that was god's promise from early on and it remained even through all the drama of history but the people of god lost sight of this and so god sent prophets prophets like isaiah who many call the prince of the prophets in part because of the the majesty and the depth of the prophecy that he wrote in his book but also because, maybe, uh, of his seemingly easy access to the kings of his day. He seemed to be with them and speak to them and have their ear frequently. And and the first five chapters or so of Isaiah are are oracles calling out Israel and Judah for their unfaithfulness to their God. And then in chapter 6 comes those words that you know well if you know Isaiah. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw The Lord. Now, an Israelite would have recognized in retrospect of their history those words as being the end of prosperity and the beginning of trouble because King Uzziah had ruled for 52 years over the southern kingdom of Judah and and had done so in a relatively faithful way. And God had blessed him, although he eventually died of leprosy because of his own problems. But it was a time of prosperity, and after Isaiah, things were downhill from there, mostly. And in the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah saw the Lord. And in the midst of unfaithful kings and struggling nations, Isaiah gives us Christmas. So what's Christmas about? Advent is, of course, the coming. It is the coming of the Lord. It's what we wait on for Christmas Day. We, we wait for the Lord to come to be with us. God is with us. And the Christian tradition is, of course, to give and receive gifts on Christmas. And that reflects God's giving of His Son to us. And that's a, a good and beautiful thing. But God with us is much more than the giving and receiving of, of gifts. It's the writing of a kingdom. And while with us, God is about the business of kingdom work, both humbling the kingdoms of men and establishing the kingdom of heaven. Now, Isaiah begins chapter 7, In the days of Ahaz. What were the days of Ahaz like? Well, it was a day filled with kingdoms that needed humility. and, And Ahaz's kingdom was one of those to be sure, Ahaz was the king in Judah following his father Jotham and his father Uzziah. And so it hadn't been long since there was prosperity in the southern kingdom. And, and this is where, in a prophet like Isaiah, the historical books of the Bible come in handy. You can look back at 2 Kings chapter 16 or 2 Chronicles chapter 28 and you see more of the story of this narrative fleshed out for you. Ahaz had rejected Yahweh. He had turned his back on the God of his fathers and had chosen instead to serve what's called the Baals, the the pagan gods, nature gods mostly. And Ahaz had actually even remodeled the temple. He had gone in as king and changed some things. He had had moved this over there and taken this out, and he'd given this to a king in another country. He had remodeled the temple, which was not the king's prerogative. In fact, it was no one's prerogative but God, but Ahaz had done it. And in Ahaz's day, Assyria, Assyria with an A, was the superpower of the day. And and Assyria had its eyes set on Egypt, but between it and Egypt lay three little kingdoms in its path. Syria, without an A, Syria, whose capital city was Damascus, so you read that in the passage, and Israel, the northern kingdom, whose capital city was Samaria, you read that also in the passage, and Judah, whose capital city was, of course, Jerusalem, and the drama that unfolds there is sort of like this, okay, so imagine with me for a moment, three mice, Not three blind mice, okay? I'm not going there. Three mice, and they're arguing with each other, say, over a piece of cheese. I guess mice would argue over a piece of cheese, maybe. And two of the mice pair up together, and they threaten the third mouse. We'll have the cheese, or else. And the third mouse, recognizing that he's outnumbered and in trouble, appeals for help to the cat. Now, this mouse doesn't think much about that. He doesn't realize what danger he might be in, in appealing to the cat, but he does it anyway, even though the master of the house in which the mice and the cat live extends his hand to the mouse offering help. And the mouse says to the master, no, I want the cat. This is what's happening before you. This is what's happening. The three mice are Syria and Israel and Judah. The cat is Assyria and the master of the house, you know, is Yahweh who made them all. And God is with us to humble the kingdoms of men. And he does it by revealing vanity where they seek refuge. Ahaz sought refuge in false gods. The Baals. It was was trendy and expedient maybe in his day, and Ahaz was a young guy. You have to know that Ahaz, we tend to look back on history and we think of a king as a gray-bearded man of some wisdom, at least an experience maybe. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and he was 36 when he was out. He was a young guy. This was a guy that didn't have a chance really to grow into the wisdom and maturity of life. This was, was a young fellow that probably was somewhat impressionable, I guess, And in 2 Chronicles 28, you read that Ahaz did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. In fact, he he made metal images for the Baals, which again were nature gods that didn't even exist. And he even burned his own sons as offerings to the Baals. And he sacrificed, it says, on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. I don't know if that might be an exaggeration of sorts, but but it's kind of getting a point across. Ahaz was very religious, busy sacrificing to the Baals under every green tree that he could find, and ignoring Yahweh who made him. And so Yahweh disciplined Judah, disciplined Ahaz by sending his two northern neighbors, Israel and Syria. Ephraim, as mentioned in this passage that we read, that was one of the tribes of the northern kingdom, which, if you read the Chronicles or King's accounts, Ephraim was really the tribe that was most responsible for the pain inflicted upon Judah during this time of discipline. Ahaz sought refuge in false gods, but he also sought refuge in false friends. Assyria, the cat, remember? And so Yahweh revealed the vanity of both of those. Now, in in chapter 8, which I didn't read a moment ago. If you have a Bible in front of you, you can look to it and see. In chapter 8, Ahaz wanted Assyria so much to be his ally that, that Yahweh basically says this to him. Okay, Ahaz, you want Assyria so you can have them. But since you refuse, Ahaz, the gentle waters that I offer to you, I'll bring the waters of the river, he says, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all of his glory, and it will rise over its channels and overflow the banks. It will sweep over Judah, even up to the neck. So God has given, through Isaiah the prophet, to Ahaz the king a metaphor explaining to him what is to come. The Baals, the pagan gods that Ahaz had chosen to worship, were nature gods. Presumably, they were able to protect their people from natural disasters. And so God, ironically, says to Ahaz, Worship your Baals. I'm going to send a flood. And they can't stop it. In fact, Ahaz, this flood that I'm going to to send is going to be... Far worse than you can imagine. They can't protect you from natural disasters, Yahweh says, because your refuge is vanity. It's vanity. Ahaz, I will send exactly what you want. I'll send Assyria, but it will not be what you thought it would be. And isn't that just the way that it is with our personal kingdoms? You know, you have kingdoms that you're trying to establish. I do. That's the way of our hearts. We we try to build kingdoms and they may not be military kingdoms. Surely they're not military kingdoms typically, but certainly financial kingdoms or social kingdoms or relational kingdoms. Even the perfect Christmas kingdom. You know, every every Christmas comes around and 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 you know if you're like me and I'm sure that you're more like me than than you would like to think. But every Christmas comes around, and I always think, you know, we have another chance to do it right. I mean, you know, it's, we've never quite done Christmas right, and I always kind of have some regrets about, you know, maybe we didn't make it spiritual enough. Maybe we didn't emphasize enough of the gospel during Christmas, and we just gave gifts and just kind of ate gingerbread cookies and sat by a tree with lights on it. But it should be more than that. Maybe we should do more. And, you know, we have our ideas of how to build the perfect Christmas and, and very much a sense of, of it being... A kingdom. We want to construct kingdoms around us, even out of good things. And yet, as kingdoms, they are vanity. God with us is out to humble the kingdoms of men, but not just by revealing vanity, but by offering grace. He offers grace where they make plans. Ahaz had a plan. He had reached out to Assyria for help. And in doing so, this is what Ahaz had said to the king of Assyria. Okay, get this. He said, in a message with a messenger, to the king of Assyria, his name was Tiglath-Pileser. What a bizarre name. He said, I am your servant. You are my father. Come and rescue me. Can you imagine the mouse saying that to the cat? I'm your servant. You're my father. Come and rescue me, cat. And the cat happily will respond. In chapter 7, verse 3, Yahweh says to Isaiah this. You can see it in your passage. Isaiah, go out and meet Ahaz, you along with your son, Shear Jashub, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool. Now, Ahaz, the king, was out checking the water supply, expecting a siege to come against his city. So he wanted to be sure that his city had water And God sends Isaiah to him to offer him grace in two ways. He offers him the grace of a sign. First of all, verse 11, God has just explained to Ahaz that these threats won't come to be, Ahaz, so don't worry about it. Just ask for a sign from me, Ahaz, to prove it. I'm on your side. You're my king. I'm on your side, Ahaz. Ask for a sign so that you'll believe And let your sign be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. Whatever it is, Ahaz, ask it and I'll give you a sign. And Ahaz responds with what sounds like a super spiritual sort of response. Oh, no, I won't do that. I won't put the Lord God to the test. I will not ask for a sign. Now, now you might think that that's a, a good answer. It's not. It's a horrible answer. If God comes to you and says, Ask of me whatever sign you want so that I can increase your faith to believe what I'm going to do for you. You take the sign. Ahaz says no in some bizarre, false humility. I think it's not even that. It's just arrogance as a king. I don't want the sign that God has for me. And so God insists. Isaiah says, God will give you a sign anyway, Ahaz. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. That's sort of a mysterious kind of Sign that he offers to Ahaz, but Ahaz, Ahaz, as king, should have at least understood Emmanuel, God with us. If he had any sense of his theology as king of Judah, he should have known, but he simply refused the sign. Who would refuse a sign from God if God had offered it? Well, plenty of people would. Plenty of people would refuse the sign of God's grace because they would just rather. Do it their own way and not depend on God, because after all, we all want to be king or queen, don't we? Now, having refused the sign, Ahaz, God offers him the grace of discipline then. Again, in chapter 8, which we didn't read, after that, that metaphor that God explains, the river will fill the breadth of your land. The river will overflow, Ahaz, this this. King of Assyria and his military might, it will overflow into your land and fill your land. In chapter 8, verse 8, God says, That river will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel And now he's referring to Judah as Emmanuel He's calling them that name. He's transferring that name to them. And there are a couple of different ways, I think, to understand that. One of them is this. God with us can mean judgment. God with us can mean discipline. Ahaz, I'm going to send a river that will overflow the banks of your land. Oh, Emmanuel, God is with you, Ahaz, whether you want it or not. And it brings discipline on your refusal to hear me. We love to make plans. You know, we all do. We we love to make plans. We fill our calendar with self-justifying sorts of activity and busyness and, and we're building our own little kingdoms and, and that's just so normal because it's a part of who we are really to do it. It's a part of our DNA to, to rule and to subdue the earth as God gave it to us to do and yet we take that and turn it and twist it into building our own little kingdoms as Ahaz did but Yahweh graciously humbles us for it, as the proverb says, the heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. God is with us, sometimes to discipline, always to turn us to Jesus, though, because the gospel isn't just a humbling, it's also an establishing. It's an establishing of the kingdom of heaven. Ahaz, you know, had to relish being king. I mean I mean wouldn't wouldn't you at least for a day love to be king or queen? He had to relish it, just the the, the sense of power and and esteem that people would give to him and the striving for things he wanted to accomplish. And surely that all would lead to just pursuing things by expedience and whatever works. But Yahweh is much more patient than men, much more patient even with the men who sat on the throne that he gave to them to sit on. From the age-old promise of the seed... To the woman, the seed will crush the head of the serpent. We know that Christmas was always, from the beginning, about the coming of a king because he's coming to preserve what he began. That's what God with us means, that God is preserving what he began. Yahweh had sent Isaiah to find Ahaz at the pool, remember? And he he sent him there to say, Ahaz, look, you don't really think that those two smoldering stumps of firebrands Syria and Ephraim, you don't really think Ahaz that they can threaten my throne, do you? In Jerusalem, you don't really think they can do that, even though they devise against you, Ahaz, plotting to set another person on your throne. It shall not stand, the Lord says to Ahaz. If only Ahaz knew his biblical theology. If only he understood Scripture in context and where he was in his history, in the midst. Of it, if only he had believed what his fathers before had believed and passed down to him. Isaiah's son was with him as he went out to meet Ahaz and give him this message. And Isaiah's son's name is significant, Shear Jashub, which means a remnant shall return. So, you know, here comes Isaiah out to the pool, and Ahaz is there pondering the water supply. And Isaiah says, To Ahaz, I've got a word of the Lord from you, and I'm here with my son, a remnant shall return. It's a prophetic word in itself just to introduce his son to him of the fact that God is preserving his people in times of distress. God had done this before. Yahweh had preserved through Noah and through Abraham and and through the people in Egypt and bringing them out. He had preserved his people always And He would do it again. You know, we start over every Christmas. We start over again, like I said before, to to recreate the kingdom that we failed to create before with the the trees and the, the lights and the decor and the food and the presents and the parties and all the things that we pile into Advent season. But Yahweh never starts over. God never starts over because in the garden at the beginning, He promised the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. And at every stop along the road of history, that promise unfolds a little more and a little more and a little more as God restores what He has created. That's another part of God with us, that He's establishing the kingdom of heaven by restoring what He created. You see the progress of that restoration by the nature of the prophecy that he gave. This gets a little bit confusing. Let me see if I can explain it to you. So, she shall call his name Emmanuel, he says. In verse 15, he, that is, the child, shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. Okay, the Lord is promising Ahaz. The land of the two kings you dread, Syria and Israel, will be deserted. This is what you need, Ahaz. You need to see that judgment is coming on them, although now judgment is coming more than that, Ahaz. But you need to believe me that, that judgment is coming on those two kings. And so here's this thing about curds and honey. Curds and honey is an odd detail, but it's explained in the verses that follow, which are not in your bulletin, but in the rest of chapter 7. There, Isaiah had explained that Assyria means discipline. The king of Assyria is coming on your land, and it means discipline for you and for them, your enemies, for all of you. And in verse 21, he explains, "...in that day a man will keep alive a cow and a sheep." And because of the abundance of milk, he will eat curds, for everyone who's left in the land will eat curds and honey. He goes on to explain that, that the land won't be farmed anymore. It'll be a disaster because it's under judgment. But you got a cow, you got a sheep, you got milk, you got curds, you got honey. That's all you got. In other words, this child to be born is a part of that remnant to come. This prophecy of the virgin and a child is a prophecy for another day. It's not a prophecy that Ahaz is going to see happen in his particular day. And he explains, Isaiah does in the prophecy, that in the time it takes for this child to mature to the point of seeing the good and the evil, the two kings you dread will be gone. In other words, in the 8, 10, 12 years it takes for a child to grow to maturity, those kings will be gone, Ahaz. And to prove it to you in chapter 8... God gives him a more specific sign, one that would happen in Ahaz's day. In chapter 8, the Lord says to Isaiah, write on a tablet the name Maher Shalal Hashbaz, crazy Hebrew name, right? So it means the spoil speeds and the prey hastens. If the spoil is speeding, it means things are getting rotten. If the prey hastens, it means their predator is on their heels, The name means that judgment is coming soon. And Isaiah and his wife then have a son, and they name him this name. And the prophecy says, before this one can say mama or dada, Assyria will carry away the wealthier neighbors. In other words, Isaiah, the Lord, through Isaiah, gives Ahaz a a nearer prophecy to prove the farther one. Emmanuel is the farther one. Emmanuel was not a baby to be born in Ahaz's day. Maher Shalal Hashbaz was. Emmanuel was a baby to be born in some future day. And we read it from Matthew's interpretation moments ago in the New Testament reading that, that Matthew named, or not Matthew, Joseph named and, and Mary named their son Jesus, interpreting the name Emmanuel. God saves. God is. With us, Joseph and Mary obeyed what God had told them. And and, and because they believed that God is with them, they accepted calls or jobs that were very difficult for them in their world. Jobs or calls that would have been scorned by the people around them. You know, Joseph remained married to a woman who was pregnant with a child, not his. Nobody did that in that day. Mary was pregnant with a baby that didn't belong to the man she was to be married to. That was a big no-no in that day. And they were called righteous for doing it, but surely the people around them called them other names than righteous. But their response was simply, Lord, we're your servants. We'll do as you call us to do. How could they do that? How could Mary and Joseph so confidently rest in God's word to them? It's because... The restoration of the gospel is the affection of Yahweh for his people. Back to chapter 8, verse 8, that, that little phrase where God has just explained to Ahaz, I'm going to bring a river to flood your land. Oh, Emmanuel. He, he calls Judah Emmanuel at that moment. It's a moment of judgment, perhaps, but it's also a moment of affection because there's no other nation on earth. There's no other people on earth upon whom God would put his name Emmanuel. He called his people Emmanuel. He placed the name of his affection on his people. God is with us means that we find ourselves more and more and more in common with the one who made us. This past week I had lunch with Chris Morrison. You might have met Chris by virtue of our Uh, church newsletter recently you should have received in the mail a week or two ago and on the back is a little bio of chris morrison chris is the new campus minister with with ruf international at smu chris and i met for lunch this past week to get to know each other a bit and as we were walking to lunch he explained that he had attended vanderbilt university just like you did colin i didn't i didn't have know that about him we attended the same university and we went on about our lunch talking about ourselves, and, and, and I said, so Chris, tell me your story. Where are you from? And he said, well, I'm from Dallas. I went to Highland Park High School. And I said, well, I did too. When did you graduate? And he graduated 10 years after I did. I didn't know him, but, you know, we try, started trying to, to share names. Maybe you knew this person or that person. Well, that's, that's interesting. We went to the same schools. Well, so Chris, tell me more. So where did you grow up in church? Did you grow up in the Presbyterian Church? No, I grew up in, in Highland Park United Methodist Church over there across... I did too. Huh? Who was the pastor when you were there? Well, Leighton Farrell was the pastor. Oh yeah, my brother and his son were good friends. I know the Farrells. That's interesting, um, Chris. So tell me more about your work. You know, you how, how did you come about missionary work here? Well, I studied abroad in college in Spain one semester. I did too. That's interesting, Chris. So we had all these things in common. Eventually, he said, you know, we spent the last three years in China. I went to China for a mission trip one time. Where were you? We had all these things in common. We had no idea how similar we were. The establishment of the kingdom of heaven, God with us, is that a child will be born in the flesh to walk the path that you walk. So that as you grow in faithfulness by grace to your God, you will recognize more and more and more that he has restored you and is restoring you to the commonalities of his image. We do many things at Christmas. You know, we we associate all kinds of, of things and meanings with it that are different, and everybody's got their different traditions and such. But there's only, ultimately, one meaning of Christmas. And that is that a kingdom has come. A kingdom is coming. In order to humble the kingdoms of men and in order to establish the kingdom of heaven. And Isaiah finishes this section in chapter 8 by giving really helpful words to struggling Christians. Even like Ahaz, I'm not so sure that he ever was a Christian, but he gave helpful words to struggling Christians in his kingdom, and he gives helpful words to struggling Christians even now by saying this to refute all those false kingdoms and to give a reason for it. He says, "...be broken, you peoples, and be shattered." He's speaking to those outside of God's kingdom, those kingdoms that would threaten your own well-being. He says, "...be broken, be shattered." Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and and be shattered anyway. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing, he says. Speak a word, but it will not stand. Why? Our God is with us. This is the word that Isaiah gives to Ahaz, a man who did not believe, who could not see straight to trust the gospel that God had given To him, and so Isaiah gave him prophecy. He gave him a word to say, The virgin will be with child, and she shall call his name Emmanuel, because God has been with you from the beginning. God is with his people now, and God will always be with you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. O Lord, we pray that you would grant to us faith to believe these words from your word, so that we might follow after your way, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.